All right, so today we are talking about what angels deliver that we desperately need. And we're talking about that because we're in an Advent series, a three-week Advent series uh, that is called Angels We Have Heard. And uh, one of the things that, that's true of, of our lives is a lot of times we desperately need to hear something and we desperately need something, we don't know what that is. In fact, we misdiagnose ourselves all the time. And we think we need this, but actually we need something deeper. We need something bigger. And so sometimes uh, we may think, all I need is some more sleep. That's all I need is some more sleep. I'm going to go to bed earlier. In reality, we're not sleeping well because we have sleep apnea. And so a, a, a trip to the doctor says, no, no, you need to treat the sleep apnea. Just going to bed earlier is not going to take care of the problem because it can damage your heart and it can damage your life. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, I've got an upset stomach, all I need is an antacid. But a trip to the doctor uh, says that, no, you don't need an antacid, you need treatment for an ulcer. So we misdiagnose the same thing in our lives, in just the regular things in our lives. Sometimes we think we need this, but actually we need something bigger, deeper uh, in, in our lives. So the angels bring some things to us, and we're going to see this. They deliver some things to us that we desperately need, but we don't always know that we need those things. Um, <clears throat> we sometimes think all we need is maybe some inspiration in a worship service. Um, maybe we, we need just a few pieces of advice from God. But in reality, God wants to bring more than that to our lives through his word, through his spirit, through the community of faith. He wants to bring change, transformation to our hearts, our perspectives, the very way we look at things. Now, the angels deliver that. Uh, several places in the nativity stories. And there are a lot of angels in the nativity stories. You really think about it. Think about the whole Bible. If you know the Bible very well, uh, think about how many angels appear in the Bible. It's, you'll, you'll go through whole swaths of Scripture where there is no angels mentioned. Whole periods of history in the Scripture where angels are rarely mentioned. Uh, but in the nativity story, there's like a, a, a whole bunch of angels that show up. So it's disproportionate compared to other places in the Bible. But when they show up, they bring some things that we, we really desperately need to hear. We need desperately in our hearts. Michael Heiser is a scholar who's just recently written a book on angels. And it's called Angels, and it says something what the Bible really says about angels because there's a lot of misconceptions about what the Bible says about angels. And he says this, angels are not screen extras in the cosmic drama. They are indispensable messengers who reveal why the birth of Jesus truly is good news of great joy. He says sometimes we treat them in our minds as if they were just stock characters in the story. It's like, uh, yeah, you gotta have, if you're going to have a nativity story, we don't think this out loud, but in the back of our mind, if we're going to have a nativity story, man, it would be great to have some angels show up, right? And that'll really create a great Christmassy feeling and that sort of thing. But they are not stock characters. They're not uh, extras. They, they play an important role uh, in Scripture, and they play an important role in the nativity stories. In fact, Heiser makes the point that some of the most essential doctrines of our faith are articulated by the angels. Uh, items like uh, salvation, God's rescue plan for humanity, clearly stated, and what it's going to look like by the angels. The incarnation, the idea of God becoming a man, some of the most important statements about the incarnation are stated by angels. 
And I want to show you uh, not only the content of the angel, but I want to show you today <clears throat> that, in fact, over this whole series, that it's more than just the message or the words of what the angels say that we need to pay attention to or that impact us, that it's actually the very presence of angels in the story that should change our perspective, should change our perspective about life, should change our perspective about our troubles, about our challenges in life, their very presence themselves. So please turn to Luke chapter 1 in your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You grab one of those, it's page 1024. If you have a smartphone or tablet device, uh, we are using the a new international version. And if you're new with us, um, hopefully you got one of these new here brochures on the way in, and on the inside there's a sermon application guide. Uh, and just inside of the sermon application guide, <clears throat> excuse me, which has many of the big ideas in the sermon, and then you have room for your own notes, uh, there are family discussion questions. Now normally, we follow what the kids are doing. Uh, but for this series, we are not going to be following what the kids are doing. But the questions in today's guide are based on the sermon, so it's going to put them at a disadvantage. So basically, read the passage with your kids, and, and then you have the questions there, and you can have a discussion and bring out some of the points of what you learned about angels and, and their message and its impact uh, on your own thinking. Um, so that's a, that's a tool for you to use. There's reflection questions that you can personally reflect on and that we use in our small groups as well. So Luke, after a short introduction explaining what he's doing in his gospel... Uh, he, he jumps into the first nativity story. The first nativity story doesn't have to do with Jesus. It has to do with Jesus' forerunner, the person who's going to prepare the way for Jesus. And by prepare the way, it means prepare the hearts of people. And so it's a story about the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. And uh, it's actually Jesus' cousin. Uh, but we pick up in verse 5, and uh, if you'll just follow along in your Bibles, here we go. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once again, Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, but he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, 
How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to you to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he had stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord had done this for me, she says. Has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. All right. So, what do angels deliver that we desperately need? And the first thing that they deliver is wonder. A sense of wonder. And we desperately need wonder. Now, uh, as I'm going to be explaining what I mean by wonder, I hope it makes sense to you that this would be one of the things that they bring. We live in a world uh, that an influential Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor calls a disenchanted world. And uh, I think this will ring true to you. We live in a world drained of, as it's described, of supernatural presences, presences like angels, uh, like God or gods uh, who are active and, they speak, or, and, and that speak to us and guide us. We live in a world drained of that kind of a thing. We're, we actually believe in our world that there are supernatural presences that actually speak to us. And the result is, and it's only a matter of time before you look at your world that's drained that way, and it's, it's a new thing in history, uh, in the Western world in particular. It's a new thing in history to have that kind of world. Now, you know, it's only been in the last couple hundred years or so that that's, or maybe even less than a couple hundred, that that would be the dominant perspective. Maybe only 50 years that that would be the dominant perspective. So after a while, what happens is that the world becomes just a cold and hostile place. It's just an accident. Uh, that has happened. I uh, had a conversation. Whoa, something. Something's happened. I uh, had a conversation in a coffee shop this week with a college student uh, who used to be here when he was like middle school or high school. Um, and we were talking about how he sees the world. Uh, I'd asked him a kind of a leading question. So, where are you now in terms of faith, in terms of following Jesus? And um, he said, no, I don't, I don't believe in God. I don't, I don't believe in, in any of that stuff. I don't believe in a supernatural realm at all. And uh, he, he, he said, and part of the conversation, this is a much longer conversation, one of the things that he said that I, that I found interesting, he said, as I look at our human bodies, they seem to be, it's easier to explain the human body through kind of accidents of evolution because they don't work very well. They're not put together very well. And uh, I think it's easier to explain them as accidents of evolution, just kind of what has happened, sometimes working well, sometimes not working well, than to explain it as something we've been created by God, and there's been some deterioration over time. And uh, I thought that was, that was a really interesting perspective. I said, so trying to, to, to get what he was saying, I said, so what you're saying is if like intelligent life came from another planet and landed on the earth and saw human beings, now we're put together and what has happened here through evolution, they would maybe be horrified. Things that we consider, people that we consider to be beautiful, they would go, ah, you know, it's, it's horrible. He said, yeah. 
And we talked some more, and, and, I, and, and he said, everything is arbitrary, and you just don't know. And I said, so if you get cancer, uh, some people, when they get cancer, they go, why me? You would go, why not me? Because these bodies are just breaking down all the time. He goes, exactly. He says, that's, that's the, the way I think. Now, he's a brilliant young man. He's in, in the sciences. He's studying in the sciences. He's, he's actually thought hard and deep about this. It bothered him for many years when he came to a conclusion that there is no God, and he did at a pretty young age. It bothered him for many years that when he died, he would cease to exist and become nothing. He says, but now I've made peace with that. Now, of course, in a conversation like that, you always have to say, well, you could be right uh, about all of that. But the reality is that a world without God or gods or angels or a supernatural realm is a world actually without hope when you look at the reality of the inevitables of life. It's a world without hope. I mean, we can keep hope, an individual can keep hope by not looking at the inevitables of life, by working really hard not to think about things like disease and death and poverty and people that are born into repressive regimes that keep them down and uh, all the things that go wrong in our own lives, the broken relationships, the broken relationships where it seems that no matter what we do, even if we're doing as, as far as we can tell all the right things, we cannot fix the relationship. Um, those are the inevitables of life. And if this is all there is, and then your, your life is done, if you get a bad roll of the dice and you're born in Haiti, um, or you get a bad roll of the dice and you are born not as beautiful or as what is considered smart in our culture. If you get a bad roll of the dice and you are born into a repressive regime or you get terminal cancer at a young age, just because you got a bad roll of the dice, it's just it's too bad. That's just the way it is. It's really too bad. And um, this is all you'll ever have, whatever you have of it. Even if it's a life of suffering, this is all you have. For those who get a good roll of the dice, I, I shared this idea um, with someone, and he said, yeah, for those who get the real good roll of the dice, he said, it's chronic boredom. It's one of the things that marks our society. So if you get the right education, the right money, the right looks, all that kind of stuff, what you, find, what you wind up finding in a lot of people in our culture is that they're bored and they have to go after one experience after another after another. None of them is filling whatever it is, that void that is in there. A world without God or gods is a world without a moral compass. This is, this is a big one. Um, I got some great discussions about this last night um, because of the example that I gave. I, I, I said this morning, I said I did even more reading. I said I, I almost don't want to bring it up because the sermon's already too long. Um, and now I know more. But there's, uh, you, you probably have heard in the news about this genetic um, experiment that happened. And so... This uh, Chinese uh, uh, physicist who uh, took a single cell of a human being and genetically changed it. And, um, and so that, those babies have been born. It's two babies. Um, those babies have been born. Some others are going to be born pretty soon that have had a genetic change. Specific, I won't go into the specifics of why, but it's to try to... It's, it's moving towards trying to make changes so that uh, there'd be certain diseases and conditions that would be eliminated. But the problem is, of course, that when you make a little genetic change, we don't know, we really literally don't know what other changes are going to take place. And so there was a lot of um, people who were horrified 
that this guy had done it and hadn't followed the rules, and there are rules and all this sort of thing, and it's illegal to do this in this country for now. So I went back and I read several articles on it, and one of the things that came across constantly is people saying, hey, if, if people do this to create designer babies, because that's one of the fears, going to create designer babies, the haves and the haves-nots, you know, people, some people with lots of money are going to become smarter, smarter, smarter. It's going to make everybody else dumber, dumber, dumber. You know, you can create a super race. You know, those are some of the fears that are out there, some of the things that can happen. It'll create an unjust society, the argument is. And you go, well, who are you? Where is the, where is the, where is the north, the true north of what justice is in a world that's an accident? Now, you have to applaud the scientists that are trying to deal with this from a scientific perspective. You have to applaud them. And from a perspective of common grace, it's an it's a important theological term that I can't go into right now, but from a perspective of common grace, we cheer for them and we join them and we try to create some rules around this and some boundaries around this. But they are completely unequipped, ill-equipped. They, they don't have what it takes because they cannot make a moral judgment. The scientist who did this, he himself said this should not be used to create, you know, super babies. Because a loving parent wouldn't do that. And you just go and you step back and you go, by what authority do you say what a loving parent does and can't do? Because you have, you have eliminated our world of authority. I don't know if him in particular, but in the world that we, it's a disenchanted world. There is no overall authority. We're just trying to, as a society, we're just trying to work our way through. So, even as believers, here, here's, here's, you know, it, this isn't the goal like this at the world, okay? I'm saying for us to look at ourselves, because even as believers, we often lack the wonder, and to some degree, we, we adopt this disenchanted perspective on the world. We're, we're not grounded, oftentimes, in what the Bible says about life, and the worth of life, and ground our life and our decisions and our morality and our ethics on what God says about life and about how we should live our lives. We don't do that. We go by our feelings just like everybody else and we make logical arguments devoid of God being in there. Now, we don't do it necessarily. Most of us don't do it purposely, but it's just, it's, it's like um, we live in this world. It's, it's like this one author that I absolutely love, Mike Cosper. He says this, we don't choose to believe in a world devoid of God. It's just that we're told, that story is told to us in a thousand stories that we hear every day. And after a while, we're just so seeped in it, that's how we think. We think of our world as a world devoid of God. But the angels in the Advent stories bring wonder. This angel brings wonder. So when we're chronically bored, or when we've lost hope, when we become a slave to all the other gods that become our gods, when we set God aside, this angel brings wonder. This angel says, this is not all there is. A message from God, this is not all there is. And their message blows up our dull, small worlds and invites us to something full of wonder. It blows up our, our scary world as we look to the future in many ways. There's a realm inhabited by God that we usually don't see, smell, or feel. But then an angel shows up and we get a glimpse, glimpse of a world that's beyond our wildest imagination. In fact, the angel is in, in this nativity story does it in a really interesting way. Angels don't... Uh, this is my conclusion. Angels don't seem to like to tell what their names are. 
because we don't get very many names of angels, two to three in the whole Bible. This one tells his name. And it seems like he's provoked by Zechariah. He, is, he does not like Zechariah's response. And you go, how's that different from Mary's response? It's actually a different word. We'll talk about that when we get to Mary. He is showing doubt in the angel, in angel's words. Like it's not a, it's not a possibility. And so the, the conversation between the angel and, and Zechariah um, is kind of interesting because I, it, it reminds me of a conversation that you probably have had something like this where you say to your kids uh, something like, hey, you need to clean up that mess, you need to clean it up right now. And your kid says, I'm so, I'm tired. And you go, hi, tired. I'm dad. <laughs> and you need to clean it up right now. And that's kind of what happens here because what, what, is, what is Zechariah says? I'm old. And my wife, she's ancient. It's not, it's not, it's not going to happen. It's not a possibility. He says, I'm Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. <laughs> you know, and hopefully at that moment, he gets it. You know, this is, uh, this is, uh, you don't want to provoke this angel. Uh, and he's like provoked to give, to give his name uh, and to, to remind him to put some awe in his life, some sense of there's more than the fact that you're old. There is a God. There is a God that is real. I represent, I stand in this presence all the time and I'm here and I'm talking to you. Wake up! <laughs> and it's a way of waking us up to awe and wonder and to something more than what we see in this world. But we can rob ourselves of that. This season is a great season to come back with awe and wonder. But we can get caught up in so many of the other trappings of Christmas that we lose the awe and wonder that God wants to reawaken reawake, in us. That this is not all there is. And I think it's part of the, it's part of the beauty of Christmas. It's part of what, what develops say, what, why we feel nostalgic feelings. Now, there, there's a whole lot going into that, I'm sure, psychologically, why we feel those feelings. And so many of them go back to childhood and getting presents, right? And stories. But, but I think there's also inherent in us this sense of awe and wonder that comes as we read these stories and we see angels speaking and we see someone like Gabriel going, I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. <laughs> and those, those feelings are evoked in us and we need those evoked in us. You know, just a few years ago we started doing um, Advent services and uh, I say this every year, I say I, I need the Advent services. Because it's part of the way that, that, that I fight back to all those other stories that are shaping my mind to live in a disenchanted world. And I, can't, I can't wait for them. Because in these services, but also our extra services, because they're just focused on, on the wonder and the majesty of what God is up to in Jesus in this season. What else does the angel deliver that we desperately need? Okay, we're going to go from wonder to Doctrine. <laughs> and, oh, you don't know the temptations, not to use that word <laughs> here, but I want to use that word because I really want to make a point with it. Um, doctrine means teachings. So what's a doctrine? A doctrine is a statement or it's an explanation of what the Bible teaches in a particular subject. Um, it's not a word that we usually like very much for a, for a lot of reasons. I had a pastor when I was in seminary. For many years he was my pastor. And he had this line that he would use all the time. He would say, doctrine and theology. He probably did this because he had seminarians 
in his church. You know, we were 10 minutes from the seminary. And he knew the, the tendencies of seminarians. And so he's like, um, we don't need doctrine. We don't need theology. All it does is create all kinds of problems. What we need is Jesus, our relationship with Jesus, and doing what Jesus said. Now, uh, he just passed away this week, and I loved this guy. I really did. So what I'm saying is not a, a, a statement about him, but what he was saying was just plain dumb and dangerous. And he said it all the time. Um, it's just plain dumb because if you say that all you need is Jesus and a relationship with Jesus and doing what Jesus says, that is built on a lot of doctrine. A lot of things that the Bible teaches. You're not going to come to that conclusion by studying nature <laughs> or by looking deep into your heart. There's only one place where you're going to hear that Jesus is worth knowing, worth relating to, and worth obeying, and that's the Bible. And so you've gathered together what the Bible says about Jesus and, and so on. So it's just a dumb thing to say, right? But, but we resonate with it because we know doctrinaire people. People will fight over the smallest items of doctrine. Maybe we grew up in churches that split many times over the smallest items of doctrine. Teachings in the Bible where they disagreed and so they go, oh, you go your way, but it wasn't that nice. It was like, get out of here, Satan, you know. You know, we know that. We know doctrinaire people who don't understand the heart of Christianity, don't understand the relational aspect of Christianity. So, so we get that. Um, but it's just dumb. You, you, you have to have doctrine. It's also dangerous. Because racism is built on doctrine. Not always biblical doctrine, but yes, even on bad doctrine from Scripture. So you better... No good doctrine. You better know the real thing so you can see the false thing. Uh, and not just racism, a lot of other bad things. Spousal abuse is built on bad doctrine, what the Bible teaches. There are, there are people who will use their bad doctrine, teaching on marriage in Scripture, to justify violence in their marriage. Um, it's dangerous. Bad doctrine can lead to us seeing our God is too small, as being insignificant, as being soft, as being unjust. Bad doctrine leads to all those kinds of things. And all those things lead to bad, bad stuff. So when we put into words what we believe the Bible teaches on any subject, we are not only being clearer in our own minds so that we can live that doctrine, but we are also putting it out there so that we can be tested by our brothers and sisters in church history then go, oh, that's really not a good idea. The Bible may, you may, okay, from taking these verses, but you better think a little broader on that because that was actually debated 1,500 years ago and the results of it throughout history have not been good. Okay, until you've stated. That was one of the problems. It's a danger of saying, well, let's not talk about doctrine. That's, the, that's divisive. You, know, you don't put it out there. You have it, so if you don't put it out there, then it can't be tested. You're not accountable. You get to believe whatever you believe, want to believe, and a lot of times it's bad stuff. So here's some doctrine that the angel uh, delivers. I'm not going to go into it in great detail, but look at verse 19. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. There's a bunch of stuff right in there. Uh, one of them is uh, that God speaks to us, that God wants to communicate to us. 
We, uh, and then we take God's word and we communicate it to others. I mean, we know this because Zechariah told us what the angel said. He told someone and he told others. And eventually it got to Luke and he recorded this. So God, God communicates and he sends people to communicate his message. And as you read the rest of the New Testament, as you look at it in the broader doctrine about God speaking, you realize that we become spokespeople for God. And if we're not living that out, we're not living out our purpose in Christ. Look at verse 17. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. This is what John the Baptist is going to do. Why? To make ready a people prepared for the Lord, who is Jesus. What Jesus is coming to do. Now, this is straight from two passages from the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, first part of it is from the last verse of the last book of the Old Testament. And they would, have, they would have finished the rest of the sentence in their minds. Just like when I, what we call the series, Angels We Have Heard, you in your mind go on high. <laughs> All right? So that this was always done. We do it in regular conversation. We just don't recognize it in other people's conversation, especially from other cultures. But when it says to turn the parents to their children, they would go in their mind and their children's hearts to their parents. Because that's what... That was what's going to happen when this prophet like Elijah comes before the Lord's return or before the Lord appears. And so we learn that family is important to God. Family is really important to God. It's part of what, I mean, it's important enough that it's part of what John the Baptist, by preaching repentance, was hoping to bring together for the preparation for Jesus' coming. And this has all kinds of implications for our own lives. Um, and at this season when there's so, many, so much brokenness that comes out, especially during the season, or we have to get together with people that, you know, where there's been a lot of relational turmoil, it's hard. But it says it's, it's worth fighting through these things, even if we have to set up, I mean, there are people in our lives, that we, family members, that we have to set up boundaries. I mean, some pretty big boundaries. But even in that, how can we find ways to forgive and love and show God's grace in the midst of all of that? Family is important. And then, and then it's, it's, it's so important that God adopts us into his family. And that, that's a game changer if we really understand it. Because especially if we, it's for everybody a game changer, but especially if you've come from a really, really broken family, the reality is God has adopted you into his family. Maybe you had a terrible father. You have a, a, a beautiful, wonderful, perfect father in Christ. And he loves you. And it means a lot of things for your own identity and for your worth, and for what God wants to do in your life. And that all comes from the doctrine, um, not here alone, but this speaks into the doctrine of what the Bible says, basically. What does the Bible say about family? It also speaks to a day when part of the vision of the new creation at Christ's return, part of the vision is that there will be no more relational turmoil. There will be peace, a kind of peace that we don't experience today. We have peace with God. We can experience a, a modicum of peace in our lives through the Holy Spirit. But a day is coming when there will be true, true peace. And we, we desperately need the doctrines given to us by the angels. By the way, every week, we're just going to look at all four points of the series. We'll look at wonder. We'll look at doctrine. We'll see some of the other doctrines. Here's the third one. And the last two are going to be really fast. Um, I just looked at my time, which means 
Absolutely nothing. Story. <laughs> Story. Here we go. We're, we're going to finish overall over time, so I know that because I went over last night and we finished overall over time. Thank you, Tom. All right. So uh, we need a better story. We need a better story. We really do. And the angel reminds Zechariah and us that we're part of a much bigger and better story. Uh, it's a story of redemption, a story of forgiveness, a story of rescue, reconciliation. It's a story of love. That's what the Bible sto story is about. Hundreds of years earlier, Zechariah, the, the angel's reminding Zechariah, hundreds of years earlier, God was already talking about what's about to happen. He's already talking about what's about to happen. This, been, this is a plan that goes actually before the foundations of the earth, which blows our minds and we can't really understand. And in some ways it's like kind of goofy, but it is. Even if we can't understand this, part of the wonder of it, the mystery of it is like, yeah, I don't understand that, but, but you said it. I'm, I'm going to believe it. And it sounds pretty, pretty incredible that, that you've had this plan all along. We have a remarkable story of God pursuing us and his willingness as we learn in this season especially, his willingness to come and be with us and to suffer with us before he suffers for us. Advent abounds with the larger story. It doesn't even make sense apart from the story of creation and then there are alienation and then the rescue that God sets uh, out and we're part of that story the story is still unfolding that's 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 the amazing thing the story is still unfolding and because it's still unfolding we have a role in that story and it's an important role and we need a better story we desperately need a better story the last thing that the angel delivers that we desperately need is direction we're dying for direction we have so many choices we want guidance we want wisdom to make the right choices in our lives. There's so many ways it can just get us into trouble. We want that for our kids. The angel brings direction. And uh, today, because I have to be really quick, let's, let's look at what this, what this angel, what kind of direction this angel brings. Well, for one, direction for our lives in this passage is found in the wonder itself. What am I supposed to do with my life? Well, worship. Make worship a priority. I mean, open your Bible and recognize the wonder of what you have. Every time you open Scripture, the wonder of what you have. God who communicates. A God who communicates and gives you glimpses of a realm that's beyond our realm that brings meaning to our lives in a way that we can't arrive at on our own. So one of, one of the, part of the direction for our lives is make a priority in your life to worship God to live with that existence of eternity, the reality of eternity guiding our daily lives. Direction for our lives is found in the doctrine that we just looked at. It's found in the doctrine of spending time in God's Word because He speaks. It's found in the doctrine of family and making that a priority. If we're slipping as a parent, if we're a child, the Word from, from the Malachi passage, the rest of that passage, the hearts of children to their parents. Whatever it is we're going through with them right now, the frustrations maybe, recognize that God wants to renew our hearts within our families. Direction for our lives comes in the story. Already talked about it, right? It's this unfolding story, right? And we have a role to communicate the unfolding story because God is still rescuing humanity. And he speaks through us just like he spoke to Zechariah, speaks through the angel and then spoke through Zechariah. And so the question in our lives is, is, so what is the trajectory? What's the trajectory of, of my life, of your life right now? Really, which direction is it going? What, 
what, what is your attitude towards life? What is your attitude towards what God has called, what called you into? Are you, are you the kind of person that people look at you every day and they don't even want to be around you because you're so, so, so negative and so uh, toxic? Christians are like that all the time. I fall into that. What's the trajectory of your life right now? Would you look at what the angel, would you listen to the angel? Listen to the message that the angels bring. Listen, look at the presence of the angel in the reality and ask yourself, what, what do I need to confess? What do, what, do I need to, what do I need to change right now? Am I going to be a curmudgeon? Everybody looks at it and just looks, Ugh, I would not want to be that. Or am I going to be a, a person who brings tidings of joy? Even if I'm feeling sad. Even if I'm hurting. Let's pray together.